Well, good morning, Hope Fellowship. My name is Jeff Brewer. I'm one of the pastors here. We do want to join. Let's join in. Well, Megan Cockrum is in California at a wedding. She'll be joining Jared tomorrow, but Jared is here, and so we're so glad Jared's here. So let's welcome Pastor Jared. And um, Jared, as many of you know, was with us a few years ago and then went to Philadelphia, and he's been serving a church there, and now he's back as our church plant pastor. Uh, Jared, you gave me this Bible right when you left, and so do you want it back now that that you've returned? I know you don't but it's a very nice gift then, and I love preaching from it. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Galatians, the end of Galatians 3, the beginning of Galatians 4. A um, couple other notes, uh, or just one other note actually as well. Uh, kids, you are doing a great job in here, and I love seeing your pictures after the service, and so if you take some notes or you draw a picture, if you wanna come down front and show me, I would love to see those. I love seeing them every week. Uh, As well, next week, kids, you probably need to pay attention right now because next week, we're gonna have a bag for you, and it's gonna have some kind of fun things in there for you to be able to do during the service, and then that bag will be for you to keep and to bring each week, and so, Kids, that's next week. We'll have that bag for you, and so you can kind of be getting ready this, this week and waiting for that. That's, that'll be next Sunday morning. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, turn to the end of chapter three. I read all of, we looked at most of the chapter of chapter three last week. I'm gonna start in 323 and read through 4-7, and our focus is gonna be really, as I'll say in a moment, our main point is gonna be verse seven of chapter four, and so... Galatians chapter three, starting in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that your word tells us that our our spirit testifies with your spirit that we are children of God. We thank you that your word tells us that The Spirit is interceding for us with groans too deep for words. We thank you that we have life because of the Spirit 
And so, Lord, we recognize that an exercise such as this can only happen as a result of the Spirit's work in our lives. And so, as the word is preached this morning, we would confess to you that we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in his work in us, and I pray for every believer in Christ here that you would be at work in their hearts, strengthening and encouraging and assuring. And for those who might be here, Lord, who don't know you by faith, that their eyes would be opened by the work of the power of the Holy Spirit, that they would be made alive even here this morning. And so we trust in Jesus together. And everyone said, amen. Well, if you had the sermon this morning beginning with a Britney Spears illustration on your bingo card, you are a winner. Because surprisingly, Britney Spears is where we're gonna start our sermon on Galatians chapter four here this morning. Now, as you might have seen ad nauseum in the news, uh, after a much publicized public breakdown by Brittany back in 2008, a judge appointed her father as a conservator over her and over her fortune for her protection. Now this arrangement was unusual for an adult, even more unusual for a celebrity, especially one as famous as her, but a, a fairly routine practice for people who had difficulty caring for themselves. You know, like a child star, child Hollywood star, might need a guardian until they reach 18 to protect their fortune, the case was made for Brittany that she, as an adult, needed someone to protect her from herself. But the problem was, of course, after 12 years and after the kind of hashtag free Brittany, she was seen as a prisoner of this legal requirement. And so earlier this week, the judge removed this conservatorship over her. Now, in Galatians chapter four, if Paul was maybe here this morning with us, he might refer to that and say kind of like, this, is, this happens out in the world. And, and Paul, in fact, in his day, is using a culturally relevant and well-known illustration of a guardian. And, and these guardians in that time, they, in Roman culture, they had a child, mostly children from wealthy or influential families, politically influential families. They would employ a guardian, oftentimes a bond servant or a slave, to watch over the schooling of their child and to handle the discipline of their child until they could reach the point, the child could reach a point, when they could step in and kind of enjoy their fortune and their role as an heir. Oftentimes, these guardians were well known to be quite the disciplinarian and very harsh to the child. So now, look with me and why we read back in verse 23 of chapter three to bring us to chapter four. Listen to what Paul, the connection Paul makes in 3, 23 and 24. He says this, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And so you notice the illustrations there Paul gives. He, he says the law held captive. It, it held captive like a prisoner awaiting trial and the, the law reminded over and over again of the rightful guilt that they have. Another illustration Paul uses is the, the law imprisoned us we were unable to escape the power of the law. And so the law given by God, which is holy and right and just, which Paul tells us in Romans, 
The law, nevertheless, because of the sinful flesh dwelling within us, because we can't meet the law, it imprisoned us. And all the more, whenever someone would try to escape by obedience to the law and think they could get out from under the law, all the more it just showed them they couldn't escape. And so the the law also, Paul says, was our guardian. It, It was there for protection, much like a conservator today. It was there for our protection, but through the law, it was also harsh. It constantly reminded the person who tried to be justified by the law, they were unable to do this. It was for the protection of God's people, and at the same time, it was harsh because it never let up, and it constantly showed they needed help. So this is why Paul, throughout the first three chapters of Galatians, he's been so flabbergasted by the Galatians turning back to the law. Remember at the beginning of Galatians chapter one, Paul says, I'm astonished. The first words, kind of, he kind of says who the letter's from and who he's writing to, and then right out of the gate, rather than thanking for God for them or praying for them, right out of the gate, he says, you know, I am astonished that you're so quickly for, um, abandoning this gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but you're clear you're going back to the law. And so over and over again through Galatians chapters one and two and three, we've seen that we've been set free in Christ and Paul's asking the question, why are you being enslaved again? Why are you being held captive by these false teachers who are bringing you back into slavery? Now, it's gonna raise that, that kind of uh, melody throughout the book of Galatians is gonna reach its crescendo when we get to Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, i.e. back to the law. And so this morning, as we look here, and Paul's still right in the middle of his argument, kind of continuing to come back to it over and over again, what I think we should see is how Paul is bringing the positive side. It's no longer just what is negative about the law, but he's seeking to encourage us with the truth that stands in stark contrast. Look, you are no longer a slave. You are no longer in slavery. You are now a child you've been set free, you've been brought in. And so that's where I, chapter four, verse seven, I think is a wonderful kind of main point for the sermon here this morning, that we want, if you wanna cling to one group, verse here, you can see it kind of represents the, the whole passage. Paul says this, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let me read that one more time. I recognize it's probably, I know the lights change every week here, and so if you're over on this side, you might not be able to see it on the screen. Uh, Chapter four, verse seven. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, but a child. And if you're a child of God, then you are an heir through God. So we could say just simply like this. Believer in Jesus, you here, who believe in Jesus, you are a child of God. And if you're a child, then you're an heir. So what I want us to do this morning is really be encouraged by that truth, and I want to unpack it in three different ways, and kind of so three different things we should see and be encouraged here from this passage. Number one, we are heirs according to promise. We are heirs according to promise. Number two, we are one in Christ. So we are heirs, we are one in Christ, and we are spirit-filled and able to relate to God as Father. 
So that's kind of where we're going. And my whole aim here this morning is that those three things would be a deep encouragement to you here this morning that you would recognize there is great truth in God's word, and no matter what you're facing here this morning, no matter what you came in, and I, I love the songs we sang here this morning, and, and just kind of the, the recognizing the way you might be feeling, and what you might be carrying on your shoulders, and the burdens you might feel, God has a remedy for those in his gospel, and we're gonna look at those encouragements here today. And so, let God's word kind of wash over you as we spend time here. And here's the first, of our kind of encouragements. We are heirs according to promise. We are heirs according to promise. Now look back at chapter three, verse 29. Paul's kind of been talking about Abraham. He says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, I think it would be difficult to overstate how important one of those words I just read was. And the word that's so diff- that would be so difficult to overstate is the word promise. I mean, think about through scripture. In Genesis, God promised to Eve that one would come from her that will crush the head of, of the serpent. Ultimately, that's fulfilled in Christ. God promised to Noah not to bring judgment over the whole earth again as he did in the flood. And that's fulfilled in Christ that he took the judgment upon himself that we deserved. Galatians chapter three shows this over and over again using this word promise at least eight different times. He says, God made a promise to one man, to one woman, Abraham Abraham and Sarah, that he would make from them a nation that would bless all nations. And so that was the promise that began in Genesis chapter 12 and that promise carried all throughout the rest of scripture. We, we saw that promise partially fulfilled when he made the nation and they were in Egypt and God delivered them out of Egypt. He gave them the land. It was partially fulfilled. His, wor- his word, his glory would fill the whole earth ultimately, but it was first fulfilled in Israel in that spot. God began to fulfill his promise by choosing a man after his own heart to be the king and the leader of Israel. But he's not the ultimate king. Ultimately, that king, David, was pointing towards the future king, Jesus, who would rule and reign over everything. You know, the promise was pointed to by the spirit, by the prophets, who anticipated the spirit, who, that the spirit would come to bring life, that the spirit would come and give a new heart. And so this promise found its fulfillment beginning at the first pages of scripture, right in Jesus. Now here's where he makes that connection. Look at verses 16, and we'll look at 18 in a minute. Verse 16, chapter three. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And so the promise to Abraham, Paul's wanting us to see, is it would be fulfilled by an offspring, singular, that would bless all nations. So the promise fulfilled wasn't in the millions of Jews that would come from Abraham, even though that was a partial fulfillment. It wasn't in the fact that he had land. It wasn't in the fact that he had a blessing. All those things were true in part, but ultimately what Paul's really wanting them to see is look, that promise to Abraham, it doesn't find its final fulfillment in the law, and so why are you going back to the law? It finds its final fulfillment in Jesus. Now look at verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, 
it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And so, can I catch the logic there? You know, for if the inheritance comes through the law, it's no longer by promise, it's, it's earned, it's deserved. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. You know, in that way, it should remind us when we think about inheritance that an inheritance comes to a person who has a relationship with the deceased, a son, a daughter, a granddaughter, a grandson, a, a nephew, a niece. Some, it's not as if someone kind of can edge their way into the family at the last minute after the death has occurred and kind of have a bidding war about getting themselves into the, the will and into the inheritance. They can't demand to have a stake. So Paul's wanting them to see as he thinks and makes this connection between promise and inheritance, he's wanting them to make sure that they understand their inheritance from God doesn't come through the law, which was a huge temptation that the Israelites were facing. They were saying, we are the recipients of the law. We have the prophets. We are sons of Abraham. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Stop just for a second there. You're, you're missing the point. All those things were to bring us to the inheritance that we can receive because we've been made righteous. And how are we made righteous? It's in Jesus. And so it begins with Abraham, a promise to Abraham that he will have an inheritance. And that inheritance ends in Jesus and it's an inheritance that we now enjoy. And so So what we should just kind of make the connection then between what Paul's dealing with in Galatia and how we can be kind of taking encouragement from this here this morning, if God can fulfill his promise to bring up to Abraham, to bring about his son 2,000 years, 3,000 years later, Jesus, who brought life to all those who were condemned, who conquered death, and who gives us the spirit, if God can do all of that, don't you think he's able to fulfill his promise and show you his promise today? Now look at verses four and five of chapter four. We often quote this during Advent. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. And so, in other words, all of this waiting for the inheritance, all of the kind of looking forward to the way that God would ultimately bring about righteousness, when the fullness of time had come, when God determined the time was right, God sent forth Jesus, born of a woman, Isaiah tells us, born of a virgin, Mary, born under the law, look at verse five, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so for all of those thousands of years after the promise to Abraham, the fullness of time came and Jesus was born under the law so that he could redeem us. And so the law constantly showed you aren't good enough. You can't do it. You won't make it on your own. Over and over again, like a sledgehammer hitting a hard piece of concrete, the law just continued in on us. And at the same time, when the fullness of time had come, God broke open that ground, and he said, here is my son. And his son died for us, he went into the ground for us, and he rose in newness of life. And so he met the requirements that we needed to meet for us, and he redeemed us. And did you notice there, so that we might be adopted into his family. 
Look, no one could have gone and demanded from God, let me into your kingdom, let, let alone let me into your family. But because of the redemption of Christ, God adopts us in. He brings us into his family. He gives us all the rights and all the privileges as one of his children. And so the fact that we're, heir, we're adopted means that we're heirs to the promise. It means that we're the promised heirs of God's blessing to Abraham. And so that's what Paul, that's kind of the line of argument Paul wants to make sure, which he, I, I hope that it see, I mean, it, it should just kind of seem somewhat obvious to us and say, well, why were they so tempted by this? Why, why were they so challenged to keep going back to the law? And the reason is they were kind of right in kind of this transitionary period and they're trying to figure out, really, is this, is this true? Did Jesus accomplish all this for me? Did he do this for all people? For the Galatians who were largely Gentiles, who would not have seen Jesus crucified, who would not have come from the Jewish nation, does he open the way even to us? And the answer is yes. And for you here this morning, for all of everyone, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, the way is opened to God. The way is open into his family. Now, so I want you to take that truth there and I want you to apply it towards how you, you might be, we all are tempted in this way on some level at some times to start thinking, we might be tempted to think that God doesn't care about, we might say, God doesn't care about me. Or we might be tempted to think or to say, God kind of seems to like to see me get kicked around a little bit because that sure seems like what's happening a lot in life right now. Or, or we might be tempted to say, God has forgotten me. Or, or God has discarded me because I wasn't useful enough to him and so now I'm just kind of off on the periphery. Look, what, you should, what we should do is we come to this promise to Abraham and we see that it was fulfilled in Jesus and that this opened up the way who all who believe in Jesus is that we recognize we are not children of God by our own making. We are not heirs because we earned our way in. It's only by grace. God opened the way to us in love through grace by trusting in his son. And so you don't need to prove your worth to God. You don't need to worry if you're good enough. You're not. His son is, and he sent his son in the fullness of time that you might believe in him and that you might have life and that you might come into his family. And so the, the sign is not, well, I guess you should come into our family if you must. The sign over the door is, welcome home. Let's turn to the next point here, the next blessing encouragement we should see. We are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. Look with me at, at chapter three, verses 27 and 28. Paul says this, he says, for as many of you were as baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So now let's kind of look at some of the phrases he uses here. When Paul writes, for as many of you who were baptized with Christ, what it should do is it should bring to our mind something we looked at a little bit a few weeks ago when we talked about how Romans chapter six uh, is a demonstration of how we've been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And so baptism, when we're baptized, it's a picture, an outward picture of the inward spiritual reality that we've died with Christ, we go down into the water, and we've risen with him from the grave. 
And so that, that phrase, put on Christ then, is, is a shorthand way of Paul saying, look, you're dead to sin. Like he's already said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. And so he's writing this in order to remind us we're not living for ourselves any longer. We've died with Christ and we're risen to newness of life. And so in this one verse, we're reminded in the union with Christ, with his death and his resurrection. That's our, that's our life now that we have is because it's in Christ. And so he says, you've put on Christ. And in that phrase is all of what I just said together. We've died with him. We've risen with him. We have life in him now. We've put on Christ. Our righteousness is in Christ alone. But interestingly, when Paul uses this language here and in Colossians chapter three, he, he's using it as a reminder of our unity with one another. So it's not just a kind of singular where it's, it's just about you and Jesus and you can kind of go on and do whatever you want the rest of your life. In fact, God, Paul is saying, look, God's brought us together. There's unity. Yes, we are saved by faith in Christ individually, but he brings us collectively into his body. We've been united with Christ together in the sense that we are all a part of his body, which is why they call the church his body. So listen again to verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now let's start with what what Paul's not saying here. Paul is not saying that there is no ethnic distinction or that male and female cease to be distinctive. If this were the case, why would, why would in Revelation it speak so clearly about every tongue and tribe and nation worshiping around the throne of God? And so in some way, a multi-ethnic, multi-gender, male and female, um, that there is a worshiping Christ and that exalts God in a glorious way because we're different and he's made us different. He's put us in different areas of the world and he's given us different desires and different hearts and we're all unique and yet, he's brought us together and we were made one in Christ. So, so someone would be wrong to imply the church just needs to be colorblind or the church just needs to be gender blind. And so God made men and women distinct, unique in role and distinct in purpose, but, but equal in personhood. And so what this means is, Paul's wanting to make the point here since in, we're united in Christ's death and resurrection, we're all united together in Christ's death and resurrection. That is our overarching main identity. In Paul's world and in the Galatian world, people were trying to make, and in our world, people were trying to make distinctions about to show who was better or who was more spiritual then. None of these identity markers uh, that they're prizing would make someone acceptable to God. And so our primary identity marker, so when Paul uses this again in Colossians 3, he's, he's kinda, he adds Scythian or slave or free or male or female. He said not barbarian, not Jew. But he's saying we're in Christ. We've put on Christ. We've been united with him in Christ, in his baptism, in his death, and in his resurrection. And so in short, our identity now is Christian. Now, 
again, this isn't to say that our distinctions are unimportant or we should just be, they should be done away with. The fact that we're all one in Christ means that out of the many expressions of human personhood and personality and culture and ethnicity, there is one all-important thing that should bind us together in the church, and that is we are in Christ. We're one in Christ. This is our first and primary allegiance above all else. And so we willingly, when we come into the church, when we're a Christian, we lay down our alternate identities that the world would prize as primary and say, this is who you are. And when we're in the church, when we come in as a Christian and we're in the body of Christ, he says, no, this is who you are. You're in me. You've been united in my death and resurrection. You are a Christian. You have life. And so Paul here, he's encouraging us, we are heirs. He's encouraging us, we're one in Christ. Let's look last here at the the last encouragement. We are spirit-filled and can relate to God as Father. We are spirit-filled and can relate to God as Father. Now look at verse six. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So God sent his son, verse four, so that we might receive adoption, verse five, and because we're sons, we have the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. And so there's this logical, logical progression that's happening, that he sent his son so that we might receive his sons and receive adoption so that we might have the Holy Spirit and we might be crying out, like the son did, Abba, Father. Now, just a, just a word here about this phrase, Abba, Father. You know, it's, it might be tempting to think, and, and sometimes people kind of pray and say, Daddy, that this kind of has this very kind of uh, common phrase that it should be translated, Daddy, Father. Now, I, I think that's not correct, actually. I think it's too casual of language, and primarily because Paul could have used different language to address, to convey the meaning that if he wanted to say, Daddy, but, but also, every time that we see this Abba Father mentioned three times in Scripture, it always has Abba with Father. You know, Jesus calls us to pray, our Father. And so what this emphasizes is that we have a heavenly Father, that this Father is not distant, that this Father isn't angry, that this Father isn't disappointed or aloof. We have a dear Father. We have a near Father We have a sincere father who has chosen to do us good as his children. And so because we're children of God by faith, and this faith doesn't rest on the fact that we're ethnic Israelites or anything else that we've done or obeyed, because we're children of God by faith, we have a heavenly father. And the spirit dwells within us so that we might cry out. Like I prayed at the beginning, Romans 8, that the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And so when you're a Christian, God has placed his spirit in you and one of the purposes he's given you his spirit for is to assure you that you are his child. That there's a resonance there that happens in your heart that when you hear of the things of God and you know and you hear of who Christ is and you delight in him, that you cry out, Abba, Father. That you can embrace him as your own and that you can, as, as crazy as it seemed to the Jews who watched Jesus called God the Father his Father, is as wonderful a truth as it is for us. 
you have a heavenly father. Maybe you had an earthly father that was not close, that was angry, that was distant, that didn't love, that pointed you away from this picture of the heavenly father. And yet here, the spirit should be encouraging us that we do have this heavenly father. And so, but you notice here what Paul writes here. He, sa- he, he, he says it this way. He says, um, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his, this is verse six, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And so, in other words, kind of what, what do you, that, that phrase always um, confused me for a long time, the spirit of his son. And I think that actually it's easy to be confused by that because we think like, okay, so we have the spirit of Jesus dwelling within us, which means Jesus is within us, but yet did Jesus become the Holy Spirit? And we can easily slip into kind of some heresies, kind of like there, there's ones called modalism where God the Father was the way God existed in, the old, in kind of the Old Testament. He became God the Son, and then God the Son became God the Spirit. And we read something like this, and we say, okay, the Spirit of his Son, he's in me, so that just must be how Jesus exists now. So it can be really confusing. Now, there's always been and always will be God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons of the Trinity. And, so the, and, and we see them all actually right here in verses six and seven. We see the Trinity in view. And what this should be doing and when we read the Spirit of his Son is that the same Spirit that indwelt Jesus now indwells us. Now, that might just kind of th- seem like kind of religious language up here. So why is that encouraging? So first, think about how, this, how Jesus had the Spirit. The, the Spirit came upon Mary, and Jesus was found, and she was found to be with child. Matthew 1.18. When Jesus was baptized, the Spirit came upon him visibly like a dove. So he was filled with the Spirit. Matthew 3.16. Jesus was full of the Spirit, Luke 4.1. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, encouraged him, Matthew 4.1. Jesus had the power of the Spirit, Luke 4.14. And so when we see Jesus exhibiting the power that he exhibited, in part, it was because he had the Spirit of God dwelling within him. He was full of the Spirit. He was the perfect Spirit-filled man. And so why it's such a blessing that we have Jesus is not only do we have redemption, but also we now have power for life. We now can live in newness of life just as Jesus walked through this world trusting in God and trusting that he would be able to uphold him and carry him through, we can trust in Jesus. And so because of the Spirit, because of the Spirit, we receive a tender heart to the things of God and we desire to follow him. Because of the Spirit, we're empowered and we want to obey. Whereas before, we might not have wanted to obey at all. And incidentally, one of, the, one of the worst kind of evidences of a hardness of heart is this I don't care mentality. I, yeah, I know that. I don't care. The Spirit comes in and gives us a soft heart and says, I do care. I might not know how I can change, but I do care and I don't want to pursue that road any longer. So when Paul says we receive the spirit of his son so that we can cry, Abba, Father, what he's doing is he's helping us to see you have the same access to the Father that the Son have had because now you're in Christ. We are his child. We have access to him. 
you know, one, one of the best trips we took as a family was when we went to Washington, D.C. a few years ago, and uh, it was fun to kind of see what was life over the, over history of the United States, what was life like for the children of the president? And so there's kind of all these different kinds of exhibits that you can look at, and, and from the outside looking in, you, you can't imagine what it would be like to have such a familiarity with the president of the United States, or that we might have the privilege to walk into the Oval Office unannounced. You know, a privilege that's not open to all children, it's only open to the children of the president. Because they're a child, they have closeness, they have familiarity, they have relationship, they have privilege. And so, kind of using, even thinking about that illustration just on an earthly level, what Paul wants us to understand, what Paul wants to encourage you with here this morning, is we have such a relationship with God now because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And so we have closeness, we have familiarity, we have relationship, we have privilege. And what Paul's wanting to make sure they understand in Galatia is the law couldn't have done this for you. Obedience, just trying to earn your way to heaven, won't ever get you what this, this closeness and this nearness because it won't enable you to have the spirit. That only comes through Jesus. And so here's what we can remind ourselves of here this morning in closing. Because God has made his promise and fulfilled it in Christ, you have the promise of life and you get to enjoy life now. Because God excludes no one from nationality or gender or race or religion, anyone on this planet can find life in Christ and they can be made one with other believers in the body of Christ. Because God has made all who believe in Christ an heir to the kingdom, you can live out of the riches of that kingdom for you right now. You might say, I have nothing. And yet, you can say, I have everything because of Christ. I am an heir, such that even if I have nothing in this life, I have all things in the next. And because you have the Spirit of God, who's the deposit, the guarantee of this inheritance that we'll have, God is near to you now so that you can cry out even throughout the watches of the night when you can't sleep, Abba, Father. You can recognize he is near to you and you have a relationship and you have familiarity with him. And so this is why Paul wants us to live with the contrast ringing in our ears from verse seven. So you are no longer a slave, but you're a son, you're a child, And if you're a son, then an heir through God. And so Hope Fellowship, let's find our life together in the body of Christ by finding our life together in Christ alone. Let's look to him, let's delight in him, and let's be encouraged through him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you know every heart here, you know every burden carried, You know every discouragement walked through. You know every tear shed. You know every sleepless night. You know every pain. You know every discouragement. You know every hurt. You know all things. And not only do you know all things about how we struggle, you know all things about our past. You know all things about our temperaments. You know all things, and yet... In the fullness of time, you sent forth your son, born of a woman, 
born under the law, so that you might redeem us who were under the law and could do nothing on our own, on our own to free ourselves. And so, Father, I pray, would you encourage us with this sweet truth here this morning? We have been redeemed. We have been adopted. We have been given the Spirit so that we might draw near to you. Help us to do that now, even in song and as we fellowship afterwards together. In Jesus' name, amen.